uh, yeah, let's just go with that. A um, couple things for you. Number one, uh, it was a lot of fun over at Woodlands this morning. If you're unfamiliar with Woodlands, Woodlands Creek is where we pre- uh, preach our first service at nine o'clock each week. It's about six, seven minutes over here. Uh, it's an independent living and an assisted living facility. Uh, and it's a, a growing congregation. It's really, really fun to preach there. What an incredible, incredible group of, of people uh, that are there. Yesterday, I had been invited about six months ago to a birthday party, a big birthday party. And so we celebrate. I just wanted to share with you that the old, as far as I know, the oldest uh, person that attends uh, our, our gatherings has officially hit 100. And her name's Louise. And what blows my mind is she is as sharp as can be. She doesn't even use a walker or a cane. And, 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 and you might want to stop the recording. I met some of her family yesterday, and I couldn't tell that they were her grandchildren. It was amazing, because there was just eight, you know, uh, just amazing um, what a story she has. And so she invited me to come to her 100th birthday party, and it was fun. So we actually sang happy birthday. I figured it, church, on 100th, okay? So if, when that happens to y'all, if I'm still here uh, alive, you know, and you hit 100, remind me that we can all sing a happy birthday to you on a Sunday morning, okay? Some of you might be a little closer, you got a ways yet to go. All right. Uh, also, I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, thank you to many. Uh, to many of you. Uh, many of you have learned via social media or, or, or through word of mouth. Uh, this week, my, uh, my mother, uh, who I had the privilege of, of just kind of walking alongside during these last, uh, especially these last two, almost three years, uh, as she struggled with dementia, diabetes, and, and whatnot, um, God uh, called her home uh, this week uh, on Wednesday. So, uh, we celebrate her homecoming. Uh, it was interesting because one of our members happened to call me on, when I was on my way back from uh, spending time with my dad and, and getting stuff uh, lined up because the funeral's actually coming up this coming Wednesday when we can get all the family together. So covet your prayers, first of all, for this coming week. Uh, th- those are the hard, some of those hard conversations that come up. So Wednesday, uh, Wednesday is when the funeral is coming up uh, back, back in my hometown. And no, I am not doing the funeral. Y'all know that I would never make, make it through that. Uh, but I, I re, uh, on my way back, coming back to Des Moines, I got a phone call from one of our members, and, and he's, uh, he didn't know <laughs> at first. And I just shared, he was asked what's going on. Well, man, woof, what a time to ask that question. I shared with him, but I knew that they have lost a number of loved ones over the last few years. And, and he said it so well to me. He said, he, said, he goes, I've, I, I'm learning to balance that teeter-totter between the loss, and, but yet thankfulness that they're no longer in pain. And you know, so that grief that follows that for us that are left here and that, that celebration of their homecoming. He goes, so resting in the joy that, that your conversations get to get picked up again very soon. He goes, wow, what a hope. What a joy to look forward to. So, you know, and it was just a great reminder that, yeah, it's normal to feel grief and loss at the loss of a loved one like a mother. Uh, but, but I will tell you this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, tell your family. 
Give them the hope that you have. Share that. Don't keep that to yourself. Share that with your loved ones. How you came to faith. How you're growing in your faith. Do not keep that great uh, joy to yourself. Let it be known to all that they might too, as they are struggling, if they don't know Jesus, that they might too come to salvation. And for those who do know Jesus, also their family, that we can celebrate that we know that it's not a period, but rather a comma. Now, if you're here this morning, if you're a guest with us, you're newer here with us, we proclaim Jesus. We proclaim Jesus because he is, like we just got done singing, the one hope that we have. And the hope that we have is the eternal life that he gives us by faith in Jesus Christ. His death on the cross bore our sins. He died for our sins. But the beautiful thing about it is the death, the grave, could not hold him. He rose again on the third day. And he invites us to believe in that fact of history, that we might too have eternal life. And it makes so much more sense out of the pain and the junk of this world in light of the beauty that is ahead for us. And we've been given, for those who believe this truth, we've been given the, the privilege to go share that with the world around us. We're gonna see that in our passage this morning. We're gonna see that. We're gonna try to review just a little bit of the book of Acts, where we've been so we can all be kind of caught up to where we're at. And we're gonna see time and again what the church did, time and again to make sure the word of God got out there into the world around. So let me pray, and, let's, and we're gonna dive in this morning. Father, good morning. Lord, we thank you again for the privilege to come together as your church uh, to sing your praises, Lord, and, and Lord, to be edified by your word, to be fed by your word. So Lord, I pray that figuratively speaking, we pull out our forks and knives this morning because we wanna feed on the meat of your scripture that we might all the more be refreshed anew and might be encouraged all the more deeply in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, uh, Lord, I know that I can't do it. I can't do this for anybody. I don't save anybody. Lord, none of us do, but we do have the privilege to be the mouthpiece by your spirit. So I pray for that this morning, that we would all be encouraged and edified and ready for what you have in store for us in Christ's name, amen. Now, a number of you know that Susan and I love to, uh, to go to the Broadway musicals and shows down at the Civic Center. And uh, sometimes we've gone to some shows that I'm really sad that we uh, spent the money on. I will <laughs> admit that. Uh, but recently, my wife and I were able to go to the, the, the musical called Anastasia. Uh, many of you, yeah, many of you light up by that name, right? You know the story. You might know the storyline. Uh, there's even, I think, Disney movies out about this and all that. I haven't actually, I don't think, ever watched it. Um, is that true? Have I ever watched it? I probably didn't stay awake for it. Okay, so... I'm one of those when the lights go out, the movie comes on, I'll see on the backside of it, that's my deal. Uh, that's, yeah. Well, the story of Anastasia, I can tell you at the Civic Center, was, it kept me very much awake. It was a great, it's a great storyline. Let me just give it to you. In, in short, there's a young lady by the name of Anast Anastasia Romanov. She's the youngest daughter uh, of then the Tsar of Russia by the name of Nicholas II. And they lived in the early 1900s. 
And so as the story, as the story goes, they were a tight-knit family. They, they, they really cared for one another well. They lived in the palace. And things were going pretty well until they weren't. Some hostility rose up against Nicholas II, and, uh, which actually eventually forced them as a family to take refuge up into the mountains. And, uh, and they were basically on house arrest up in the mountains. Well, as the story continues on, uh, while they were in house arrest, about a year, approximately about a year later, uh, there was more unrest coming. And what they were told, the family was told, is go to the basement and this is where you will be safe while the unrest is happening out in the country. We'll take you down the base and protect you. What they didn't know was when in the middle of the night, when they were told to go to the basement, what they didn't know was that there was an execution squad standing there ready to, to kill them all that middle of that night. Now, as the story goes... Anastasia, the star of this show that we got to watch, this musical, uh, it was believed, it began, the belief began to rise amongst the, amongst the people that somehow Anastasia had survived the execution. Many believed it was because of the precious gems that the family had sewn into the undergarments that somehow Anastasia had lived. In fact, they also wondered if Anastasia's youngest brother, the one young behind her, uh, if, if she and he had lived through that execution because the bullets may have uh, deflected because they were strategically placed in her garments. Fantastic storyline. And in fact, that was the truth that many came to, to believe for, for quite a season in that it, it potentially across the world. Uh, now, in light of that, many imposters rose up pretending that they were Anastasia because her grandma was living in a different area and had not been, uh, was not with a family when they were all murdered. And so many girls after girls would come and present themselves to grandma as if they, many years later that they were the Anastasia that she once knew. Well, the fact of the matter is, Anastasia, uh, the belief of Anastasia, the truth of Anastasia was that she was very much alive somewhere. In fact, it even all the more was, was backed when once, uh, the, somebody came along finally and found the grave for the family. And in that family grave, when they did DNA testing and, and, and all that they do, they did not find any DNA for her, for Anastasia, or for her brother in that family's grave. All the more, back in this truth that everybody was believing, somehow they lived. Well, the sad part of, of, of the story is that a short while later, as people continued to look, someone came across a shallow grave, not far away from the family grave. And through DNA testing, they found that it actually was the remains of young Anastasia and her younger brother. They too had obviously been murdered that one evening, uh, March, no, excuse me, July of 1918. But now the reason I share this story with you, there was a truth, there was a fact that people believed. And they believed it for quite a while. And the fact about that fact is people held on to that and because they believed it to be true. That is, until more truth 
became evident. Well, I think that's very much, I mean, we can all think of stories that might run similarly or parallel to that. A bit of that is, is a lot like our story in the passage today, at least the opening story in Acts chapter 19. There is a truth that we are gonna see 12 men believe. They're believing this and they're sharing about this truth wherever they went. And, and, and they continue that until they met the apostle Paul when he actually did, like Paul Harvey would say, shared with them the rest of the story. Well, let's take a look at this truth that they believe. Let's take a look at this story and, and then we'll see what Paul does to help them understand the rest of it. Verse, uh, we're gonna pick up with verse one. And it says, and it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard there's a Holy Spirit. He said, into what then were you baptized? Well, they said into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Now, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There was about 12 men in all. So what we see here in these opening verses is, is simply this. Repentance and faith in the name of the Lord Jesus will bring about obedience. So let's give you a little bit of context here to make sure we're all on the same, on the same page. In verse 1, we get reintroduced to this gentleman named Apollos. If you were with us last week, uh, Paulus appeared on the scene. Uh, Paulus, if you remember, uh, he was actually going from area to area, city to city, and he was proclaiming the baptism of John. This is what he knew, the baptism of repentance. And, and he was also, we were also introduced, uh, Apollos was introduced to a young cu a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Now Priscilla and Aquila uh, presumably heard the Apollos proclaiming in the synagogue the baptism of repentance that John the Baptist brought because Apollos was a disciple of John the Baptist. And I love the, the, character of, the characters of Priscilla and Aquila because they humbly invite Apollos to come to their home to teach him. And it said in the passage last week that he taught the scriptures accurately. He did. He taught accurately according to what he knew, the truth that he knew that John the Baptist had declared, the baptism of repentance. That it was a fulfillment from the Old Testament. So that's what Apollos taught. Or Priscilla and Aquila were able to take him into their home and teach them, as the scripture said, more accurately. They shared the good news of Jesus with him, that the coming Messiah, that John the Baptist was there proclaiming about, Jesus had come as the Messiah, had given his life, had died on the cross, rose again on the third day, and that Apollos can take it to the bank, so to speak, as we might say today. That Jesus, the Messiah, had come. And number two, that there was a Holy Spirit that was promised for those that come by faith to Jesus. This is the Apollos that we're looking at today. Now, how important was Apollos in the movement of God's kingdom? I, I don't want to miss this before we move on from Apollos. Uh, Paul talks about Apollos in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. He says, what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul continues on in 1 Corinthians. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
That's oftentimes how the church planning movement goes. God, it, it isn't about us, if, if, if you don't mind me saying. It isn't about Paul and it isn't about Paulus. What Paul did is he planted the seeds of the good news of Jesus Christ wherever he went. He was a faithful missionary called to plant churches wherever God led him. That's what a faithful missionary does. They go out and they do this. They're about planting churches, spreading the good news of Jesus. So Paul planted seeds and he was very well persecuted for planting the gospel wherever he went. But then there's Apollos and he says, he says, look, I planted the seeds, but good seeds need to be watered. It's one of the reasons I think we, part of the reasons we come to church, not just for the community that we have here, but that we actually continue to have the, the seed that's planted in us watered that we too might grow. And that's what Apollos did. Apollos wanted to go where Paul had been. And so Apollos headed off to Corinth. He asked for permission last week that he might get maybe a letter of recommendation to go across and go to Corinth where Paul had come from, the city we talked about last week. And so that's where Paul said. So Paul says, it ain't about me, the seed planter. It ain't about Apollos, the waterer. It's about God who is the one who brings people to faith. He is the one that brings growth. Apollos is a faithful missionary from what we can tell. And Paul gave high regard to him. Now Paul here today is on his third missionary journey. And he comes back to Ephesus. He was hoping that if God willed, he could come back to Ephesus. And he arrives into this city of Ephesus once again. Now, a little bit of context around Ephesus. Ephesus was known for their temple of Artemis, some known as the Temple of Diana. Okay? Ephesus was, one of the things that it was probably best known for is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there in Ephesus. And it was, it was called the Temple of Artemis. And, and uh, let me give you kind of a mental picture of what it must have been like. It's described to have been 127 marble pillars that rose 60 feet into the air. Can you imagine? 127 of them, 60 feet in the air to hold the canopy that went over top. It's made of gold and gems. In fact, the marble pillars were made of marble, but there was gold and gems inlaid, I should say it that way. It covered a, an area somewhere between, uh, somewhere of 425 feet in length, 200 feet in width. Ephesus, because of this amazing thing here, became a center of worship for fertility. There was a number of things that came along with this amazing wonder of the, of the ancient world. What came along with it was the cult, a cult of superstition. Uh, there, was, <laughs> there was magic practices going on. There was what we would call satanic worship going on in that time and probably many other things. Ephesus had to have been an incredibly dark and dreary place to live, quite evil, if you will. But the passage tells us, so Paul passed through the end of the country and then he came to Ephesus. And when he got there, verse, two tell, verse one and verse two says that he met some disciples. Now, disciple at the very core simply means follower or student. If you're called a disciple, uh, the question is, who are you following? Right? We like to say we're disciples of Jesus Christ. We are followers of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul says that he came across some disciples, some followers of a teacher, 
The question is, what teacher did they follow? So what Paul says here, he, he asks them a question to discern what in the world, because there must have been something going on in their conversation that Paul's like, hey, something's not lining up here. So he says this, he asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? Imagine what Paul, what this conversation must look like. Something set him off that says, I don't think they've got the full story. And as they interacted, we see in the first verses here, they said, well, actually, it was into John's baptism that we were baptized. There was two things, therefore, that these 12 men did not know. Just like Apollos that we saw last week, they didn't know that the coming Messiah that John proclaimed had come. His name's Jesus. And secondly, they did not know that there was a Holy Spirit that came when a person came to faith in Jesus. I think it's, it would be helpful for us this morning just to take a brief review and overlook about John the Baptist and then, and then let's look at how the church functioned in light of it to help people fill in the blank from what John the Baptist proclaimed to what the church proclaimed and how they tied this together. I just want to take for just a minute or two here this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn back to Gospel of John. I always encourage you to bring your Bible apps or your Bibles with you every Sunday. Go to John's Gospel, chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 23, 25, and 26 briefly here this morning. John chapter 1, 23, and I think it'll be on the screen as well. Now this is John the Baptist speaking here. I want us to get a heart from John's words what John was called to do. It says, John uh, says, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah says in verse 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, look at verse 26. John answered them, he said, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, for a moment, look down to John 1, verse 31. He said, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So what John the Baptist's baptism was all about, baptizing in repentance, in preparation for the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, who John says, I am not even worthy to touch, to untie the strap from his sandal. That's Jesus. And all John says is, I am a mouthpiece. I am a fulfillment, he says, from the prophet Isaiah, that, that I would come one day. I am that fulfillment. And he says, he says, so that's why John came, to give the baptism of repentance, preparing God's people to receive the true Messiah, Jesus. Now with that background, turn over to Acts, back to the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to hit just a couple of passages this morning. It might be review for many of us. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, many of us are familiar with Pentecost. You know, you remember Peter? Remember Peter when he walked with Jesus and, and Jesus' disciples? Peter was one I just, I, I love to joke about because the guy always, he had the proverbial foot in the mouth syndrome, didn't he? He always stuck his foot in his mouth, at the, uh, or maybe he should have put it in there faster, whatever the case may be, but he always got himself in trouble. He always said dumb things at the wrong time. Well, here we come to Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and Peter stands up and gives the most amazing sermon. 
Look what he says, Acts 2, verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was Peter's proclamation in a nutshell. Repent and believe, get baptized. Repent of your sins, believe in the name of Jesus Christ for the salvation of your life, and you will be, and get baptized, and you will have the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you the rest of your life. And if you notice in Acts 2.41, here's the result of Peter's preaching. This is what God does. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Man, the church was planted. 3,000 plus. Now I want to point out, and I think this is worthy of writing down, there's four things we see in a pattern that Luke, time and again through the book of Acts, wants us to understand. There's a pattern that the church does. Number one, someone preaches the word of God faithfully. You could say it this way, somebody preaches the name of Jesus faithfully. Secondly, some or many come to faith in Jesus. Third, they are immediately baptized. And fourth, they receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you've seen Peter. Now I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 8, verse 12. I want you to see another gentleman by the name of Philip. Philip is having a conversation with Simon the Magician. So here's Philip. Philip is going to be our preacher this time. And it says in Acts 8, 12, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. It says in Acts 8, 13, Simon himself believed, and after he believed, Simon continued on with Philip. At that point of conversion, Simon said, I'm coming with you, Philip. I want to hear this more, and I want to grow in my faith. I want to be a faithful servant of, your, of yours, of Christ, to help you. Okay, so we've seen Peter preach this. We've seen Philip preach this. Now we come back to Peter. Uh, turn over to Acts chapter 10, verse 37. Here's Peter preaching once again in, in the home of a Gentile uh, family. And he says this, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism of John. Acts 10, 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And look down to verse 44. Now while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. All right. So let me, again, let's look at this. For each of these passages, we've, somebody pre we've seen somebody preach. We've seen somebody believe. We've seen salvation happen. We've seen baptism. And we see the Holy Spirit was given. And it wasn't just like in Acts chapter 2 that was primarily the Jews. We also see that it was that what was considered the half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Greek. And now in Acts chapter 10, we see that, that, that there was what we call oftentimes called the Gentile inclusion. So it was Jews and Gentiles alike that salvation was available for them. My friends, for those of us sitting in this room, you ought to say a mighty praise God. The gospel is for us, for all. So it's pretty clear. 
Luke is giving us a pattern that we see so far in the book of Acts. The word of God is preached by somebody. The name of Jesus is preached. Number two, faith or belief in Jesus happens. Number three, baptism follows immediately. Now, if you're unfamiliar with baptism, baptism is simply this. It is an outward expression of an inward faith that you have in Jesus Christ. Notice it wasn't a delayed reaction. It was, I get baptized when I come to faith. That's what the first church does. That's what God's church does today. And fourth, the Holy Spirit pours out and empowers and dwells all the true believers. Now, why does all of that matter, that little quick history lesson of the church and the pattern we see? In our passage today, Paul's meeting these disciples, and he's hearing from them that they have signs of John's repentance, as John had proclaimed, but there was no evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So what does Paul do? Paul does the process, the pattern that we see in the book of Acts. Paul preaches. Verse 4. What does he preach? He preaches the difference between the, the, the baptism by repentance and the faith that comes in Jesus and the immediate following of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. We see in verses five through seven how they respond and it says all 12 of these disciples came to faith and they were baptized into the name of Jesus. The question before you this morning, I would ask you is simply this. If you've been with us for any period of time here, we faithfully want to hold up and hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you've been with us before, in any given Sunday, we know that we've wanted to faithfully proclaim the gospel. So you've hopefully heard the gospel. The question next is, do you believe? If you believe by faith in Jesus Christ that he has died for your sins and given you eternal life, welcome to being part of his church, his true church. The next thing that you are to do is to follow him in believer's baptism immediately. Now you might be asking yourself, well, I was sprinkled as an infant. And I would say congratulations, but did you believe in Jesus when you were eight days old? Right? We understand that's not the deal. So, and you might say, well, I was baptized when I was confirmed. Well, the question before you is, did you believe when you were confirmed and were baptized? The real question for us this morning is simply this. Have you followed in the first step of obedience after you have come to faith? If the answer to that is no, then it's, a beautiful opportunity to let us know so that we can get you baptized. It's a public proclamation of what God has done of the inward transformation in your life. Look at verse eight with me this morning. And he, this is Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. 
So what we see in those couple of verses there is the word of God is boldly spoken. And when it's spoken boldly like that, it will experience opposition. Notice as Paul faithfully does, we've seen it time and time in the book of Acts, Paul, when he comes into another city, where does he go? He goes to the city center. He goes to the synagogue. And he begins to proclaim in the synagogue that Jesus was the, is the Messiah that they were waiting for, that he gave his life, died, and rose again. This is Paul's message. It's the gospel message. And it says there that he proclaimed this for three months boldly in the synagogue. And it says in verse 8 that he reasoned and he persuaded, but it says that there were those who were stubborn and would not believe in Jesus as the Messiah who had come. Now this time... When the opposition arose, unlike other times, maybe Paul learned that, uh, hey, when opposition arises, let it calm down for a second, uh, step out for a moment. You, you know, it's not been a good track record for him, right? He's, he, he suffered quite heavily, you know, stoned and beat and left for dead. That was kind of Paul's thing. Here, for whatever reason, he, maybe he's learned and he says, whoops, okay, I'm going to let this calm down for a second, but I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to keep proclaiming. I'm just going to do it in a different part of the city. And so Luke records that Paul goes to this, this hall of Tyrannius. Now, the very root word of Tyrannius is the word tyrant. The hall of Tyrannius, history tells us, was named after a person by the name of Tyrant. Now, for just for a moment, what parent would call, call their child Tyrant, Right? I mean, they named them way before the terrific twos, right? Right. I mean, just imagine that. And I'm, I'm sitting in my study this week, and I'm chuckling. I'm thinking, how bad was that pregnancy? <laughs> right? I mean, how much pain? I mean, here, mom, you know, type of deal. I, I can't imagine. That'd be kind of like, like somebody calling their child, naming their child uh, ornery, right? Or stubborn, or... Uh, I won't go into any other ones. Uh, you get the picture, right? Well, there, there was a place where, where you could go and proclaim whatever was on your heart. And so Paul, it says, Paul took and went to the hall of Tyrannius. And for two years, he reasoned and he persuaded from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, now, let's put this, let's understand this a little bit. Some records say that he spoke from the fifth hour to the tenth hour every day. That was from 11 a.m. till 4 p.m. each day. In that culture, uh, they would have a morning shift, basically, before the heat of the day. They would take 11 to 4 to have siesta, do their other stuff that they need to do work while, or home, whatever. And then they'd go back to work around 4 o'clock for a season. So what Paul did is during the heat of the day, he would stand and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ five hours a day for two years. Now I calculated that up for a minute. That's over 3,100 hours of gospel teaching in the city of Ephesus in two years. Friends, think about how many hours. Think about it this way. Here's one of the concerns I have for our culture today is that unfortunately all too often 
other things crowd out the very important thing of being edified by the Word of God. And when we're raising kids and other things are going on, I get it, I get it, I'm living it, it's difficult. But the important thing that I think we need to do is help our children to hear the proclam- faithful proclamation of the Word of God. They need to hear it regularly. They need to hear it in questions. They need to hear it in roots. They need to hear it wherever they are. And actually, I'm a little afraid to calculate up if we took from K through 12, how few hours actually our children will actually hear the gospel unless you as parents bring the gospel to bear on their lives, teach the gospel in your homes. This is a real concern for me, and I think the world around us is showing evidence that it is a very big concern. We need to take, as parents, and go teach this to our children, that they might, too, take it to our children's children. Let me just say it this way. 3,100 hours of reasoning from the Scriptures in two years is amazing. And we know, we can tell from the Scripture, that it was profitable, It was fruitful. Uh, It says in verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of God. Secondly, verse 11 through 12, we see that the advancement of the gospel was accompanied with unusual miraculous gifts by Paul. So God was using this man and using him to do miraculous things to prove that he was truly an apostle of God. And number three, I think there's a third fruit, and it's in, we'll see it in verses 13 through 16, and it's this. Spiritual warfare set in. I believe whenever the gospel is truly proclaimed faithfully, we ought to anticipate spiritual warfare. It's just what's gonna happen. Let's take a look just for a moment before we move on at verse 11 and 12. It says there, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So what we're seeing here is the picture of the power of God prevailing over all through this apostle. We've seen this kind of miracle happen before. In Acts chapter five, You may remember the story, people would go and lay their sick out into the streets so that hopefully, possibly, as the Apostle Peter would walk by, even his shadow would fall upon them and heal them. Ray Stedman, I think, says this well about our passage today. He said, the handkerchiefs and aprons were symbols by which God chose to employ in order to underscore the characteristic of the apostle which made him a channel of God's power. In the same way, Moses' rod was a symbol. Cast on the ground, the rod became a serpent. Lifted over the waters, it rolled the waters back. There was nothing magical about the rod itself. It was simply a symbol of something about Moses that God honored. So these sweatbands, these handkerchiefs and aprons, were symbols of honesty, dignified, humble heart, the servant character which manifest and released the power of God. Now, unfortunately, as is often the case in history, religious imposters, men of no character, try to, try to imitate what they saw the Apostle Paul doing. 
This fact is pretty evident here in verses 13 through 15. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, in context there, exorcism was a common trade in those days. In fact, history tells us that the best of those exorcists, uh, they believed, knew the names of the spirits by which they were commanding to, to leave. So it makes sense. Here's seven sons of Sceva. After hearing and seeing what Paul was doing, that his very handkerchiefs and his aprons that had just touched him were actually healing people and, and helping and causing spirits to leave them. Well, what they wanted to do was to use this same power of this name Jesus to produce their own prophet. But God would not be mocked, my friends. God decided to make a, le a lesson and a spectacle out of these seven gentlemen. So much so that it says all of Ephesus would know. By the way, it might be helpful for you if you want to understand what Luke is trying to get across here today. He's certainly talking about the power and, the, and, and God's ability to prevail over all evil. The word all. If you want to underline the word all in these 20 verses, you'll be amazed how many times the word all is in here. And it's typically, it's pointing to the power of God at work at this time. Look with me in verses 15 and 16. It says, but the evil spirit answered them. All right, so here's the seven. They're trying to, they're trying to use the name of Jesus for their own profit. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Imagine that interaction, the evil spirit through this dude. That had to have been, I think, chilling. And, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. You know, I think there was an infatuation in Ephesus around demonic things, magic, the magic arts of the time, spiritist type of stuff. I actually think today in our culture, that still is quite prevalent. I, I kind of want to turn the channel whenever I see one of those advertisements for one of these creepy movies. I can't, I don't like the stuff. It's nasty, to, in, in, in my opinion. I have very, my kids will attest that I have very little time for the junk. I mean, I remember as a kid, not only weird movies that seemed quite evil and demonic in nature. Anybody remember the Ouija boards and the Dungeons and Dragons stuff, right? When I grew up as a kid, that was all proclaimed, supposedly, that it was all demonic at the core. I don't know about today, uh, but I didn't play with that stuff. I didn't, I didn't get it because I, I was like, I didn't want anything to do with anything that was demonic, if it in fact is. I want nothing to do with uh, satanic worship at all. I mean, I look at this passage here today and I think, man, if we wanted to make a movie that would probably sell and make millions, the, the title for it is actually right in the passage. Did you catch the title? Ready? Naked and Wounded. Tell me, tell me, wouldn't that sell? Wouldn't you think, right? How cool, right? Evil spirit jumps seven dudes. 
and beats the pudding out of them, and they go running naked out of the house for cover to get back to their homes. They just got a whooping. And you know what? God allowed it. That's the thing. God allowed them to get beat up and sent out a packing. I think in this passage right here, I think there's two very, really clear warnings that we need to understand. First of all, there will always be those who try to make, that are imposters that try to make a dollar on the name of Jesus. But recognize God won't be mocked. There will always be, they still exist and they will until I think Jesus returns, always will be. So be wise, be careful, be wise. And in fact, for any false teachers out there, they should take heed. Because you know what? Eventually they'll become the laughing stock of all of Asia. I mean, it was right there. Number two, don't dabble in the things of the cult. These things can lead to demonic possession oppression. And to be really frank, this is me speaking now. I'm not so sure that there aren't some, some high emphasis. I don't know what percentage. I wonder if there isn't some that dabble in that junk that actually result in some forms of depression. I don't think all depression is brought up by that, but I think they're small. It's just too interesting in my pastorate to, to go along and find that they started doing this and all of a sudden this. I can't quite understand it, but it's, it's a little creepy. That's, okay, let me move on. So here's what we see. Verses 17 through 19, the darkness in Ephesus is starting to move out. The light of the gospel is starting to break through. And what happens is it says, fear comes upon all. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. As many of those who were believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Let's be, I want to just be clear here. I don't believe it was because of Paul's extraordinary miracles that brought all the fear uh, to all of those in Ephesus. I think it's a very real reality that liars and cheats, false teachers, had tried to use the name of Jesus as if the name of Jesus was an evil spirit. That's really kind of how they were trying to do it. And they were judged by God for it. I believe that what transformed Ephesus at this time was Paul's faithful proclamation of the good news of Jesus, my friends. And through that faithful proclamation... People had to look at the mirror of their lives. And God was calling many to repent, to come to faith in Jesus, to get baptized and to follow him. I like what Martin Luther once wrote. He said, just as Christ descended into hell and then ascended into heaven for us, so must the soul of man. When a man truly perceives and considers himself who and what he is and finds himself utterly vile and wicked and unworthy of all comfort and kindness that he has ever received from God, he falls into such a debasement and despising of himself that he thinks himself unworthy that the earth should bear him and it seems to him reasonable that all creatures on heaven and earth should rise up against him and avenge their creator on him and should punish and torment him and that he be ever unworthy of that. That 
nothing grieves him more than his own guilt and wickedness, for that sin is not right and it is contrary to God. Our sin, our wickedness is contrary to God and for that cause he is grieved and he's troubled in spirit. This is what is meant by true repentance of sin. And he who in the present time enters into this hell enters afterward into the kingdom of heaven. I think it's a beautiful picture what Martin Luther wrote. It's a beautiful picture of what transpired that day in all of Ephesus. All the residents of Ephesus heard the gospel. They heard the word of God. The power of God was on display and it prevailed over all evil. And the result was they came confessing their grief. They came, they recognized they needed to repent. They came confessing their sins and together they took all their magic paraphernalia, all their books and all their junk. And what they did is they had a party. They had the huge, most huge bonfire. I can only imagine how big this thing must have been. They have this huge bonfire and it says they burnt up equal to over 50,000 pieces of silver. Let me put that in perspective. That is equal to somewhere around $5 million of today's value. Burning in the city streets. Think there was some repentance going on, my friends? Wow. You see, fear, guilt, repentance had gripped the folks in Ephesus and darkness was fleeing the same is true today in God's church. When light is shown into the dark places, those outside the church will believe as well. But I want, I, I just thought in my office this morning, man, not this morning, this week, what would be burnt in the city streets of Des Moines if the Holy Spirit convicted the church today like he was doing then? What would be burnt I wonder if it wouldn't be some things like computers, some cell phones, maybe some so-called games that we think are innocent. Maybe it's movies. I don't know. There's probably many other things that I'm unaware of, uh, but I think a lot of those things would be surrendered. And I also wonder if at that time, if they didn't, as they surrendered it, they turned to their friends and said, would you begin to pray for me? that I would be released from the oppression that I've been under, that I would, would be freed from whatever has held me captive. And I think that would be even true today, that the church, if the Holy Spirit convicted us of whatever it is that, that, that was drawing us away from faithfully following him. Because I believe in this text, we see both the church was convicted and others outside the church were convicted. And God, we saw repentance and we saw faith and we saw a celebration of salvation. Well, we come to verse 20, and I think verse 20 is really a parenthesis. It says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I think next week what we're going to see is the forces of evil will once again kind of double down, going to try to invade. The enemy of God hates God's church. The enemy of God hates when he loses ground with people. So he's going to double down and bring it good and hard. But I'm going to tell you right here, verse 20, it's a beautiful opportunity just to have a parenthesis. Paul could celebrate that those, those, those years of preaching the gospel faithfully day in and day out had produced incredible fruit. And they were celebrating. 
So as we close this morning, what, uh, what are we to do with this? We need to respond to God's word somehow. You know where God's convicting you this morning. I'll give you five really brief points. Number one, we must preach the word of God and we must sit under the word of God faithfully. We must preach the word of God and we must sit under the word of God faithfully. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Number two, we need to repent of our sin. Notice that, the, that this passage has a bookends of repentance. There were the, there were the 12 that, that knew the repentance of John and here the, the city is repenting. There's a lot about repentance. We must learn to repent of our sin as well. I heard it, or read it once where it says, repentance is a part of the normal Christian life. Number three, I think it's tied to the first two. We must destroy or remove whatever it is that is causing you to dishonor the Lord. You know what that is, wherever that is. Number four, we need to pray for one another. My friends, friends, let me be really clear. Spiritual warfare is real. We'll see it in the context to come. Paul even writes it to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, 12, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against their authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he goes on, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And he goes on in Ephesians 6, 18, and he says this, praying all the time. What we must be is people of prayer. Maybe this morning you've been wrestling with, should I sign up for 15 minutes, a half an hour, or an hour to pray in our time of prayer in the counseling suite? Uh, if you haven't signed up, and maybe that's, maybe that's how you respond today, you sign up uh, to, to be one who will pray for each other and keep writing prayers on those sheets. They're all over the walls in there. Keep writing those up there as God tells you, here, let's pray for this, let's pray for that. Be people of prayer. We need to pray for one another. So there's still time to sign up out there and then we'll, uh, uh, there'll be a code sent to you so you know how to get in the church and unlock the church uh, yet uh, today. So the next 24 hours of prayer began. Started at eight o'clock this morning, goes till eight tomorrow morning. Let us be people of prayer to pray for one another. And lastly, like the story of Anastasia, now that you know the whole truth, how will you respond? Will you believe by faith in the only name that can save? And if that's you, and today you said, I believe, would you come see us? So we want to schedule a baptism. Maybe we'll even have a baptism service on Easter. But would you let us know that you've come to faith? And the next step we can get you ready for is becoming baptized. Let's pray, and uh, then we'll invite the, I'll invite the ushers to come forward as we... Uh, as we reflect, it's always good each week, each Sunday, to reflect on what was proclaimed, that we get to respond in our giving back to the Lord out of the abundance he's given us, and we respond also by faith in whatever he's convicting in our hearts that needs to change or we need to repent of and, and change and walk by faith. Or maybe this morning, it's the first time and you believe and you, you wanna have the first real conversation with God, recognizing that, that he did send a son for your life, that you have eternal life waiting for you. Maybe that'll be you this morning. If so, I, I celebrate. So let me pray a blessing of this offering and then we'll close with the benediction in a couple of minutes. Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you that we can sit under your word. We thank you that we have your word that you use to help us to understand, uh, Lord, the vision you have for our lives and that you convict us by your spirit, you convict us of our sin. 
And you invite us to repent and to turn, simply what repentance means, to, to turn 180 degrees the other direction from however we are offending you, contradictory to you. Lord, I pray that you'd meet with us right now as we sit here quietly in this moment. And uh, Lord, would you meet with us this morning and help us uh, to follow you more faithfully. Father, we recognize these uh, gifts that we are about to give back to you, Lord. It's out of the abundance you've given us. Lord, we will use those faithfully, continue to use them for the advancement of your kingdom. So we ask, Lord, your blessing over them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 